Have you ever read a book and thought to yourself, I could explain this to someone else, but maybe there's a few things that I want explained back to me. I'll be sitting down with authors, thought leaders, visionaries. I'm your host, Josh Lipstone. This is Explain This Book to Me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Josh Lipstone, and this is Explain This Book to Me. Today is book three, episode one, and I am joined today by the author of the book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical, and he is Brian Ahern. Brian is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People, an international trainer, TEDx presenter, and consultant. He specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday business situations. He is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. This specialization was earned directly from Robert B. Cialdini, PhD, the most cited living social psychologist on the science of ethical influence. Brian's book was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. How are you today? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, before we dive into the book, I'd like for the loyal readers to get to know you a little better with three questions. Okay. Question one, do you prefer a book or an ebook to read? I have flipped back and forth between that. Uh, when ebooks came out, I loved it because I read so much that I was able to easily get back to things that I referenced. Uh, but now I've swung back to paper and I love the feel of a, a highlighter in my hand and writing notes on the side and, and things. So when there's a book that I'm really going to want to get into, I, I buy the physical copy of it. Uh, that That's me as well. I like the physical book. I haven't been able to transition over to the Kindle or iPad or whatever device that uh, that people like to use. Well, I, right. still, I love it. I love the Kindle, though, because when I would travel, to have access to that all makes those sense. books was, was really wonderful. And and again, to go back and pull forth notes, to be able to quickly find the references I need, I, I love that too. Yeah, it, it does make it. And it also helps with packing. You don't have to pack as many yeah. books. All right, question two, what is your favorite book? It's always hard to say favorite because um, Different books have meant different things to me. I did write a blog post once, and it was called The Five Books That Im Impacted My Life the Most. Okay. Um, first would be the Bible. Uh -huh. um, being a Christian and my worldview, uh, that was certainly it. Obviously, Robert Cialdini's book, Influence Science and Practice, because it changed the course of my career and really the, the course of my life. Uh, I've always said The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because when I read that almost 30 years ago, I sat down and wrote the mission statement and have looked at it or listened to it almost every single day since then. So obviously that book had a huge, huge influence on my life. And then um, two books that really impacted how I go about doing my presentations. Um, one was called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, and really understanding how he was interacting with audiences radically changed how I interact with people. And I could just see the difference in audiences as I began to incorporate that, uh, along with what I learned from a book called Presentation Zen, about how to use imagery to really drive home your messages. So 
different components of life, but huge impact in, in different ways. And, and then the final book that I would say too, just on a probably a philosophical level was um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning about his, his time in concentration camps and what he learned about the human spirit. Very good. I'll have to definitely check those out. I've uh, I've read the first one that you mentioned, but need to check out the uh, the rest of them. I do have the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People on my bookshelf as hopefully one that we'll be doing here on the podcast sometime in the future. Um, all right. Question three: Would you say it's nature or nurture that's made you the person that you are today? It's a fairly deep question. Yeah, um, my thinking on this was impacted a lot by a book man, uh, by a man named John Barg called Before You Know It. And he explores uh, our evolutionary history, mm -hmm. our personal history, our choices in the moment, and then what we choose to focus on in the future all shape who we are. And so I, I, I would have to say it's a mixture. I can't okay. disassociate myself from my biology, the fact that my ancestors chose to move to America, uh, all of those things are completely outside of my control. To be who I am here in this country is, is completely different than if I was born somewhere else. The opportunities there are given to me. But then I also believe very strongly that our choices ultimately uh, define us. So in, in a sense, it'd be like an athlete. An athlete. A lot of people are born with great talent. Right. Then there are those who take that talent to levels that propel them into professional sports and superstardom. So I think it's that kind of mix when it comes to us as individuals too. Yeah. And, and uh, regarding the talent aspect, there was a quote that I read by Kobe Bryant that said, I was blessed with talent, but worked as if I had none. And that's something that I heard um, recently, I believe it was after uh, his passing earlier this year in 2020. Um, and that's kind of really stuck with me for that. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, we are recording this episode on Friday, September 4th, 2020. So let's go ahead and get started explaining this book to me. So I want to begin by discussing a story from the foreword of the book, which was written by Dave Lacaney. Is that how you say his name? Lacani. Lacani. Okay. Who's the author of the book, Persuasion, the Art of Getting What You Want in Subliminal Persuasion. So he tells about a challenge that someone made to him when he was learning the art of negotiation. And the challenge was he had to negotiate the price of everything for a week. He couldn't pay full price for anything. And if he couldn't negotiate a better deal, he had to walk away. And the one story that highlighted um, that I want to highlight was when he had to pay for gas and he asked the cashier if he could have a discount on gas. And when um, she said to him, gas stations don't give discounts on gas, you've got to know that. Why would you ask for a discount anyway? And his response was, because I need to fill up my tank for a trip, which is a technique we will learn about in a future episode mm -hmm. that I'm excited to, uh, to explore. Um, and now to his surprise, uh, she responded with was sure. Why not? I get 10 cents a gallon off for my employee discount. You can have it. Mm 
So here's a question that I have, and it's kind of my personal philosophy about this type of situation. And I believe I need to change my thinking about this. Um, to me in this story and taking away from the fact that this was a challenge that was given mm -hmm. uh, to him, um, it gets back to the idiom, it never hurts to ask. And for me, I've always strongly disliked that philosophy of it never hurts to ask. And, you know, the follow up statement is, you know, the worst they can say is no to me. And I don't know if this is the right word. Maybe you can come up with a better word, but I feel somewhat sleazy or slimy and um, asking, you know, someone or a company to do something that I know they really shouldn't do or that they don't have to do. And I feel that simply because I just want it, that it's not really justifiable. So is my philosophy on disliking the it never hurts to ask going to be a hindrance in my ability to influence people? Or is it OK if I still hold to that philosophy? What would you say? I would say it's going to hinder it because it will not propel you forward to ask in uh, as many situations as you might ultimately hear yes. And I think there's a number of factors that go into that. First is fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, um, as we talk about the book, we will undoubtedly talk about uh, scarcity and, and loss aversion. And, and we, we human beings are much more averse to loss than they are uh, to, to gain. Um, so that fear of rejection will hold us back despite how good the the yes might be what you may say what you may get so i think that holds us back and i think the other thing is just this perception that people won't want to help and there was a study that was done and, and i don't remember the all the, the tight details of this but josh it was basically this people were asked um they were put into a situation where they were going to have to ask somebody for help and it was directions on campus to the gym and the gym was actually pretty far away. And the next thing they were supposed to ask was, well, I don't really think I understand how to get there. Would you show me? So this is gonna cause people to go like five minutes out of their way. Mm. And, and when they were asked, what percentage of people, how many times do you think you're gonna have to ask somebody before they ultimately say, sure, I'll, I'll walk you over there. I think the average came in, most people were saying between six and seven times, I'll have to ask before somebody will finally say, sure, let me take you. But the reality was it was about three. Wow. We only made about three asks. So if you think about this, we may be holding ourselves back by, by saying they're not going to say yes. We've got this number in our mind. You know, only half the people will say yes to us. And mm -hmm. in reality, maybe... 50, 60, 70% will say yes, but we're holding ourselves back because of that fear of rejection. That makes a lot of sense because I do deal with a fear of rejection in both my personal and professional life. So that makes sense. And then I've always had uh, a problem with delegating, um, you know, so uh, that makes that makes sense why that philosophy um that I hold that and why I, I hold it. So yeah, so providing some insights and counseling to me to, in the first few minutes of the episode. So and you're not even laying on a couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, just send me the bill when we're done with this. So, all right. Um, well, moving on to the first section of the book. Um, now, before we move into this first section, I have to ask, why are there not chapters in this book? Um, 
it, it was there a motivation behind that? Was it something that you had said, I don't want to have, you know, chapter one, you know, uh, chapter two? Was it something that your editor did? Um, it was something I noticed. So I was curious, what was the motivation behind that? Uh, there wasn't really any thought process behind okay. it intentionally when I was laying things out of doing my writing in Google Docs and, and using how it was laying things out. As I would come up with a chapter title or a subchapter title, I would simply put that in and I would start my writing. And I never it never really even occurred to me, Josh, to say, you know, chapter one and then put the title. Okay. I, if I had done that, the layout would have shown chapter one, chapter two, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just curious. All right. So you begin this chapter by stating much of your professional and personal happiness depends upon getting others to say yes to you. Mm -hmm. And no matter how good you thought your decisions were, you had to convince others that they were good. And then you saw this after getting married and starting a family, that persuasion was helpful on a personal level. And so what I'd like to know regarding this, does your wife or daughter ever, and I'm using air quotes, call you out when they see that you're trying to use these techniques um, in the book to persuade them? They have. And then there are times when each of them have used the psychology on me. In fact, my wife's done a really good job at times. And after the fact, she'd come back and go, didn't you see what I was doing there? <laughs> I mean, so literally, Josh, one time she said, um, my stepmother, uh, Joe, was turning 65. And my wife said, hey, Joe's turning 65. Do you mind if I go, go to Scotland with her to play golf? And I said, yeah, I kind of mind because mm -hmm. I really want to go. And now's not the right time. And she said, fine. Do you mind if I go to Florida for the week then just to play golf with her? And I said, no, I don't care at all. <laughs> she came back later and said, didn't you see what I did there? She goes, I never really thought you'd say yes to Scotland. But I knew asking for Scotland would make Florida, by comparison, seem like nothing. And uh, she goes, I can't believe you didn't catch that you teach this. And my response was, my radar is not always up with my loved ones, but well, yes. played, well played. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. They, they, they both uh, they both have heard me talk about this so long and read the book and things. That they they understand it and and they probably uh, utilize it with me, but also can tell when I'm utilizing it with them. But I will say this, Josh, you use the word technique. Mm -hmm. I, I really steer clear of technique. I don't teach okay. people techniques because I always think a technique, if you find yourself in a situation where the technique doesn't work, you're dead in the water. But if okay. you understand the philosophy and the psychology behind it, then you can pivot because you have many more options at that point. So I really want people to know that you're going to be learning about principles in how mm -hmm. humans think and behave. And the more you internalize that, the more you'll see opportunities to employ it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So no more use of the word techniques, principles, and philosophies going forward. Um, so you go on to write about how this book will teach people about how others think and behave. And your goal for the loyal readers is that by the end of this book, you want them to think, I see how I could use this at work and at home. Mm -hmm. But you go on to caution us that the information isn't a magic wand and even behavior experts can't make that claim. Right. 
And so what this book is based on is social psychology and behavior economics. Now, for the loyal readers, can you give us a brief definition of what social, social psychology and behavior economics are so they have a better understanding of what we'll be talking about? Sure. Social psychology has been around for a long time. So everybody understands psychology and how people think. And then social psychology is how we as humans um, interact in social settings and interact with one another. So this isn't psychology like um, lay on the couch and analyze your dreams kind of thing and um, overcoming uh, personal issues that you may have. But it's it's more generally about how people think and behave. And then in very specifically, I talk about the research that shows us how we can get people to say yes to us and actually take action. So that that's the social psychology component. Behavioral economics is more recent uh, area of study, and it came about kind of pushing back on traditional economics. Traditional economics um, is really based on a rational person theory. You know, if prices go down, you buy more. If they go up, you buy less. Um, and that's not always the case because a lot of times how how things are framed mm -hmm. and make a big difference in terms of whether or not people will say yes and, and buy them. And, and here's one simple, almost silly example. There was a study that was done where people were asked uh, about cupcakes. So you might have been walking by and somebody would say, excuse me, would you like to buy some of our cupcakes? They're delicious. Mm -hmm. People bought significantly more when the person would say this, excuse me, would you like to try some of our half cakes? They're delicious. That simple change in, from cupcake to half cake caught people's attention and caused a lot more people to buy. It's the same item, same price, but how it was talked about, how it was phrased. And, and that's what people will learn throughout the book, that these seemingly small changes can make a big difference in people's willingness to say yes and do what you want them to do. So the, the behavioral economics part of it mm -hmm. really flies in the face of traditional economics, that it is most people do not make decisions rationally. We respond mm -hmm. based on emotion, and then we justify with rationality after the fact. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it's almost like the stock market right now. It doesn't make sense that it is what it's doing um, right now, given the, the current climate that we are uh, all a part of. So very good. Um, now you go on to write about a disclaimer that you're not a social psychologist nor a behavioral economics, um, but you were trained um, in that. So have you ever thought about pursuing that? Is that something that you will end up doing, you know, a, as a second career, or uh, is it something that you've decided not to pursue? I did consider it um, mm -hmm. many, many years ago, and and I got some input from uh, Dr. Cialdini, uh, mm -hmm. from the individual that I was reporting to at the time at the company that I worked at. I sought some input from people and said, you know, should I go down this path and get a master's in organizational psychology and maybe go further. And they said, well, what are your goals ultimately? And I said, really, my, my goals are not to do research or anything, but it's to take what people are learning through research and help individuals and organizations put it into practice. And, and both people who I respect immensely said, I don't think that would be the right path then because there's other skills that you could focus on to help you in, in that pursuit of helping others. And that's where I really began to bear down on my writing. So I've been blogging now for more than a dozen years, um, writing the book. I've got another book that people are starting to review right now. 
working on my speaking skills. But my forte, Josh, is I understand business really well. I spent more than three decades in, in the insurance industry. So I understand that, but I understand business. And I also understand the psychology and I can help people bridge the gap. Okay. Because I've, I've found that people can go to events and listen to speakers and think, wow, that stuff's really cool and leave and have no idea how to apply it. My skill set is really to bring it down and have people go, I can do that. That makes so much sense. And 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 that's kind of the the focus of this podcast is providing that to the loyal readers mm-hmm. to give them more things that they can actually take action on mm-hmm. at the end of this. And if they want to learn more, reaching out to uh, the guests such as yourself about that. Um, so I'd like to read a quote from the book, and it's something that Dr. Cialdini wrote about you. And this can be found on page two of the book. Um, when Brian Ahern speaks, people listen. That is so because he knows his material thoroughly and he knows how to present it superbly. The upshot is that the genuine insights he provides are not just immediately understandable. They are also immediately actionable and profitable. And when I think to myself, I have a hard time or when I think about this, when I um, when someone says something similar about myself, um, I have a hard time. I've struggled with learning how to promote myself. Um, and so I need some advice. And you kind of already given me some advice on how to overcome that so that I'll be able to persuade others. So what's some advice that you could give to me to be able to to get over kind of the hump um, to be able to promote myself rather than just allowing my actions to speak for me. I I think the single best thing is just what you read there. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have to toot my horn to tell you, I mean, we've talked before about how I've worked on my craft in terms of Mm -hmm. visual and my auditory presentations, but to have somebody like Robert Cialdini, that third party, say that I know this material thoroughly and that I can help you put it into action and, and help you uh, do so profitably, that speaks volume. So anytime we can get somebody and the better known they are and the more respected they are in their field, anytime we can get somebody else to vouch for us, that's where we have much, much more credibility. Um, I'll give you another example that mm-hmm. on my website, if somebody went there and they looked at my bio, they would see a man named Jim Hackbarth, who is the CEO of AssureX Global, so a global mm-hmm. insurance agency. And I spoke at one of their conferences and, and he sent a note back to the CEO of the company that I worked for at the time. And he said, we have not seen such high marks for a speaker since we had Colin Powell speak at our wow. conference. And that was gold. And so I said, Jim, can I use that quote? And he said, absolutely. I don't have to go tell people I'm a really good speaker. If they see that quote and they see who I'm compared to, that third party validation. So the 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 short now answer to your question, Josh, is look for testimonials from respected people who can talk about what a great job you're doing. And that will always carry more weight than you trying to tell somebody because people view you as having that self-interest but when a third party says it, mm-hmm. it just carries more weight. That makes that makes sense. That's why um, for our agency, uh, online reviews have been so influential in in gaining new new prospects and clients. Yeah. And, and um, one more thing to that point too, I, 
I have no problem if somebody reads my book and, and they say, man, I loved your book. I'd say, hey, I, I'm, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Would you mind going to Amazon and leaving a review? Because the more that people know how, how people like you enjoyed the book, the more people will buy the book and get out of it what you did. Exactly. And unless somebody says, oh, I've never gone to Amazon. I don't know how to do a review. They always say yes. So that's another example of um, I'm asking them to do something that they probably wouldn't have done. They just might not have thought of going to Amazon and, and doing a review. But but those are uh, very meaningful for me. And it's pretty much costless for that person to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It just takes a couple minutes yep. at, at most. Um, now, the final statement of this section is a claim that you made, which is if you take the time to learn about the psychology of persuasion and diligently apply the scientifically proven principles, you will be more successful in your career and you will enjoy more happiness in your personal life. Mm -hmm. And with that statement, we're going to move on to the next section of the book, which is why influence is all about people. And so you begin this chapter with writing influence isn't just about leading followers. And just because someone isn't in a formal leadership role, you still need to influence people. Yep. You then write out what the word people stands for, which is powerful everyday opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical. When did you come up with this acronym? I don't remember. It wasn't like there was a flash of, um, brilliance and like Eureka, I've got it. <laughs> but it was it was early on when I was blogging. Um, it just came to me uh, mm -hmm. somehow at some point. Um, and it, it I think it beautifully encapsulates what influence is all about. It's it's powerful because it's research based. We're doing it every day. There are opportunities for people to tap into this that they might not know of. Um, if they uh, do it well, it can have a lasting impact and it needs to be ethical. So uh, I think it encapsulates um, all of influence really, really well. And it's it's kind of my moniker that I came up with. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so we're going to break the acronym down letter by letter. So let's jump into that for the loyal readers. Okay. So the first word is powerful. And I love that for each word or almost each word, you have a quote. And the quote for powerful is by N Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. And what makes this book powerful is that it's based on 70 years of research into the science of influence and human decision making from social psychologists and behavioral economics. Mm -hmm. You then write about how you used to be a competitive bodybuilder. And for the loyal readers wondering at home, how much could you deadlift, bench or squat back when you were uh, doing competitive bodybuilding? Um, the heaviest squat that I did was 600 pounds, wow. about 400 pounds. My deadlift was in the um, 550, 560 range. So um, I, I, I love those days. You know, when I was at Miami University in uh, Southwest Ohio, I was the president of the weightlifting club for three years. And uh, I really thought, Josh, that my life was going to be, I was going to own a gym. That was oh. what my intentions were as I was competing. And uh, and then I say, you know, I, I, I got my job and I got married and priorities started changing. Uh, I still work out, though, every day. I've got a, a really nice gym in my basement. And so uh, seven days a week, I wake up, I run in the morning, and then I go back down in the early evening and I lift. What time do you wake up in the morning? I, when I was working my corporate job, I used to get up a little before four because I had to get to downtown wow. Columbus 
and I would do all my working out in the morning. Uh, since I left that corporate job nearly two years ago, I give myself a break. I, I get up at five now, but by five thirty, I'm I'm in the basement for at least an hour, and then, as I say, I go back down in in the late afternoon or the early evening to lift weights. Wow! So waking up that early, what time would you go to bed? I'm usually in bed between nine and nine thirty. Um, okay. And I, you know, when you get up that early, you fall yeah. asleep well. You sleep yes, you hard. Yes, you do. All right. So the, you then go on to write about how you would consume books and magazines to emulate and train like the top competitors, mm -hmm. but they were essentially freaks of nature. Um, and you write that their advice didn't work for the average person and quite often was counterproductive. And this same thought applies to people's mm -hmm. um, advice when it comes to influence from the likes of Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Oprah Winfrey, et cetera. So what I'd like to know about this is should the loyal readers try to emulate their heroes that may have certain gifts that they are not blessed with? And if not, who should they try to emulate if not their heroes? Yeah. Um so, you know, the, the gist of this, Josh, it comes down to if you if you are blessed genetically, mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can train the wrong way and still get great results. That's not to say that if you train more scientifically that you would get even better results. Um, but I think to look at somebody and say, well, that guy or that woman, this is what they do. They run 15 miles a day. If you or I try to go out and run 15 miles a day, our body is going to break down. Mm -hmm. We're not taking into account how many years it took them to get there. Um, but again, even if even if it took them a long time, they still might have the genetics to be able to do that where you and I wouldn't. So my encouragement would be to somebody, if you wanted to get healthy, you should probably read what research says about diet. You should probably read what research says about physiology and anatomy. How can I take that and begin to apply that to the sport or just the health that I want to get rather than just listen to somebody because, oh, that guy was Mr. America or she won the Boston Marathon or something. Those are, are legitimate. But, but again, following that advice may not be good for your body, but you can depend on what the research has to say. And so when you segue into what I teach, um, like if we look at Donald Trump, and this isn't a support or an against, but but there are certain things that he says and does that virtually anybody else, if they said or did, would be shunned or lose their job. So mm -hmm. I would not advise somebody that just because, hey, that guy became president, this is what you need to do. You could make the same statements about some things that maybe Obama said or did, or that Oprah Winfrey or Bill Clinton or any number of other people who are really well known. Mm -hmm. Just because they're able to get their way by doing something doesn't mean it will work for you or I. And so what I encourage people to do is understand what research says about how humans think and behave and how can you take that and ethically work it into your communication. And, you know, if you're only getting one in 10 people to say yes to you now, but you can move it to two in 10, that's a pretty good jump. And if mm -hmm. you keep getting better and it moves to three or four, that's what I want people to be able to see. Not that everybody is going to say yes to them, but a lot more people will start saying yes if you take that research and begin to incorporate it into all of your communications. So sometimes you can't compare other stories to your own story because you could be at the beginning and they may be at the end. Absolutely. And in the environment that they find themselves interacting with, the audience that they're interacting with, all of those things will factor into why some people are getting people to say yes, but then others could take the very same approach 
and and fail miserably. Gotcha. Well, the, you then finish this section about powerful and write that Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence Peoples, ties directly into the concepts of your book, which clearly means that if the person listening and reading your books likes Dale Carnegie's book, then they're going to like your book. Yes. All right. So let's move on to the second word, which is everyday. And the quote you've selected is from Charles Swindoll. Is that how you say it? Swindoll? Yeah, Charles okay. Swindoll. All right. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for the day. So the first thing you write is when was the last time you went a whole day where you had no interaction at all with another human uh, human being? Um, and when I first read this, I thought to myself, that would be amazing. But then I remembered I get easily very easily bored, um, which is why when I go on vacation, I'd rather go to a place like Disney World instead of the beach because I can be doing something mm -hmm. rather than just sitting on the beach for an entire day. Um, and you write that the vast majority of people interact with other individuals every day. And I would dare say over 99.5% of people interact with others every day. I um, mean, you go on to write that in Dan Pink's book, to sell as human, that 7,000 people um, or 7,000 people in the book, he mentions that they spend 40% of their day in non-sales selling. Mm -hmm. So can you give the loyal readers an example of what non-sales selling is so they can have a better grasp on this concept? Because it could open up their minds that even though their title may not have sales or some version of sales in it, they still need to have this influence mindset. Sure. Sure. I an example for an insurance agent would be um, asking somebody to do something. It could be with their um, recommendations from an engineering report. It could be getting lost runs. It could be something that might not be directly tied to trying to make that sale, but it's information that they need because the company is requiring it. So they are trying to influence the behavior of that individual. Um, in corporate settings, if if you and I work together and I wanted to get you on board for a new initiative, how I communicate with you, Josh, might make mm -hmm. all the difference between yes and no. There's no dollars being exchanged. So I would say it's not a sale. I know people like to use the term everybody sells. Uh, and, and I used to use that term too. But really, I, I reserve selling for where dollars are exchanged. Okay. But what I'm trying to do here is influence you. And if you really begin to think about all the interactions that you have with people, the vast majority don't have money being exchanged, and yet you're trying to get them to do things. That's that non-sale selling. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So you conclude this section by writing, one reason you enjoy teaching others about the science of influence is because whether you're at work home, or any other place where someone interacts with people, understanding how humans think and make decisions is incredibly useful every day. And to me, this sums up why this book is not just for people in business, but for people in everyday life. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and I, that's why I always emphasize professional success and personal happiness. I have seen, Josh, where I speak to audiences and I can tell when somebody's there because the boss said they had to be, you know, just the look on their face, how they're looking at their watch. But it always seems like the moment that I talk about, you know, and maybe you'll be able to get your kid to empty the dishwasher, boom, they kind of sit up and they lean forward. Because if they can maybe get somebody at home to do something, now they're all in. And I feel like I virtually have 100% of people 
fully engaged because they either want to have more success at the office or they want to have a little more peace and happiness at home. And they start to realize, hey, what this guy's talking about, it can help me do that. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him, I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed, let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia, we saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual intel, that's with two L's, that's virtual, I-N-T-E-L-L, Com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, requiring, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel. Cast certified. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It just doesn't apply to half of your life, but all of your life. Mm -hmm. um, so the third word is opportunities. And the quote you've selected is from Seneca. And it's luck is where preparation meets opportunities, which gets back to the one of the questions that Jason Cass, who is the host of the other two podcasts on the AI network, asks his guests, which is luck or skill. What was, if you had to choose one of the two, which one brought you to where you are today? And I know you were a guest on his show mm -hmm. and he asked you that question. And loyal readers, if you want to listen to that episode, once you finish listening to all the episodes with Brian and I, uh, it was on July 29th, 2020. And it's called, it's, not, it's about influence, not manipulation. Now, in that episode, you answered skill. And the reason that you gave was actually... A qu the quote from the section. Mm -hmm. So when you gave that answer, I know I'm asking you back a couple months, when you gave that answer, did you think in your mind, this is in my book, and it's the quote I use for opportunities? Or is it so ingrained in you that that was just your automatic response? Um, it's been ingrained in me, not because I learned it from Seneca. I, in fact, mm -hmm. had a, a friend correct me, I originally attributed it to my high school football coach, because that's who I heard it from. And, and that was a long time ago, Josh, and it stuck with me. Uh, ever since he said that, the the thought being, if you're not ready for the opportunity because you haven't prepared, then you're not going to have what most people call luck. And I do think that what we call luck uh, most of the time is you're ready when opportunities present themselves. Um, I, I can think of many times in my life where that was the case. So... I trust that preparation is the key so that when the opportunity arises, you know, and, and we see this sometimes in sports, you know, last minute, a guy gets an opportunity in a fight because the scheduled fighter got hurt. He gets an opportunity at the champ and lo and behold, he shocks the world and, and wins, but he was ready for that opportunity. And I think when it comes to business, it's the same thing. We need to be prepared. Um, 
I will give an example that I was supposed to do a TED talk uh, in March this year. And a week before the talk was canceled because of COVID. Mm. I probably practiced that 18 minute talk 250 times oh, yeah. every day. I'm driving in the car all, all over the place. I was disappointed, but I also know this, Josh. There will be opportunities for me to take all of that preparation and put it into practice. If somebody asked me tomorrow, hey, fly out here and do a TED Talk, I'd be ready for it because I was prepared. Well, you'll have to let me know when you do that TED Talk because I would love to uh, either be there or hear it uh, on a recording. So very good. Um, so you write about how uh, you ask or you'll ask your audience when you're speaking, the last time you bought a car, did you notice your new car on the road more in the days immediately after the purchase, which the audience will always answer yes. And you ask a follow up question, then what changed? And the audience will generally answer my perspective, which is correct. But the better answer is focus. So can you explain to loyal readers what is the difference between perspective and focus with regards to their answer? And is there some sort of scientific name for that phenomenon when you start noticing things, when you begin to focus on them? Um, I don't recall off the top of my head if there is a scientific name for it. Okay. But, but I, I just went through this. I just bought a new car a couple weeks ago. Okay. And I ended up getting a, a Lexus. My, my wife has had one for a long time, so it's a great car. Got everything I wanted in it. But I have been surprised, Josh, mm -hmm. how many times I look over and I'm seeing the Lexus um, emblem. Yeah. And, and I'm aware of this. I, I'm like, gosh, I was not seeing it before, but now that I bought one, and so I get that. Uh, and, and I think now I'm becoming more focused on it too. As I look at cars, I start thinking, is that? So my thinking has changed to allow me to see something that hadn't been there before. Um, I, I kind of use the words perspective and focus um, interchangeably a little bit, but I, I look at focus as something that is uh, more intentional because um, okay. not just a noticing now, what I'm actually doing is I'm looking for, because I'm aware, like I'm starting to see that, that Lexus logo everywhere. So now I am hyper-focused on, oh, is that a Lexus? Oh no, it's a Hyundai, but I am actively like looking for it. I think when people begin to understand these principles, at first, they're going to begin to notice like, oh, I never really understood that before, but I recognize that person's using scarcity. Then they're going to start becoming focused, like watching the news to say, how are they trying to influence me? Mm -hmm. How is that salesperson trying to get me to say yes? What's the marketer doing here to try to get me to go to the store or click on this link to go to their website? That's where um, we've we've moved from this broad perspective into a very focused awareness of what's happening. That makes sense, which is why people also say that if you want to change your habits, change the people around you. And mm -hmm. if you can't change the people, if you can't change your people, change your people. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. Um, so then you write about how in the next section, which is uh, principles of ethical influence, um, are all the things that you already know because they formally describe human behavior that people mm -hmm. have observed. And even though we may intu intu intuitively understand them, people need to use them ethically and strategically to persuade others, uh, which may pose a challenge. And so is 
this where you go from trying to influence someone to trying to manipulate them is, is or did i misread or misunderstand this part of the of this section so, so um you cut out just a tad there so we're talking okay. about what it means to persuade right correct yep yeah so so we we can talk a little on the ethical side when we get to the letter e for ethical but okay. when it when it comes to persuasion uh, i had somebody tell me once I, I never try to persuade somebody i just let them make their own decision and i laughed because we are trying to uh, and i'll use the words influence and persuade interchangeably here okay we are trying to um influence or persuade people every day all day long from womb to tomb i mean think about this josh mm -hmm. when a baby is born he or she cries as a, as a parent you don't know, always know is it because they're hungry are they wet do they need burp do they want to be held but but that baby has a need and it is doing what it can to get the need met Mm -hmm. Then we grow up and we learn and we understand language. We begin to uh, understand people and we are still always trying to get our needs met. Some people learn to do it well. Some people don't learn to do it well. But the reality is through the rest of our life, we will we will interact with people on a daily basis, trying to get them to do things for us. Um, when I talk about what it means to persuade, I will mm -hmm. emphasize it's not enough to change somebody's thinking. Because okay. if you and I have a conversation about the dangers of texting and driving, and then I share information with you and you say, wow, I didn't realize it was that big a problem. Mm -hmm. And then you get in your car and you text. I've, I've done nothing to help uh, change your behavior or solve the problem. So when I talk about persuasion, I use Aristotle's definition, which is, he said, the art of getting someone to do something that they okay. wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. Gotcha. So, so it's about behavior change. You don't want to interact, Josh, with a client who say, hey, I really need you to get me those lost runs. And they say, yeah, it's a great idea, Josh. And then they don't get you the lost runs, right? Yeah. You, you want them to, to do something. And so that, for me, is where the rubber meets the road. Changing their thinking might be a good first step, but we ultimately want them to change their behavior and do that thing we need them to do. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so... Uh, it, within opportunities. So the next thing that you write about um, is a reminder to the loyal reader, which is the good news is the more you learn, the more your eyes will be open to opportunities that have been there all along, mm -hmm. which means that everyone should continue to learn on a regular basis. And that learning doesn't end when you graduate from high school, college, mm -hmm. pass some sort of exam, uh, whatever it is. Right. And you finish up the section by writing about a real life experience you and your former company have. And this story is about sending an email mm -hmm. to prospective insurance agents and how you incorporated just one short paragraph into that marketing campaign, which resulted in hearing back from eight agents within an hour. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you remember what was written in that paragraph that resulted in such a high response rate? Yes, we I was in the sales department and one of my responsibilities was to help with the recruitment of new agencies to represent the company. And so we were proactive in that. And, and this goes back a long ways and, and we would actively market to agents. And to my knowledge at that time, there weren't a lot of companies doing that. Most companies sat there and waited for agents to come to them. But when somebody, if somebody from that company would have visited your agency, Josh, and said, wow, you know, there's a real potential here, they would have entered information into a database, which would kick us off to start marketing to you. We would send a quarterly letter or email 
from the vice president of sales. When we learned about a concept called scarcity, that people will want things more when they think that they're going to be less available, we realized we had an opportunity to utilize that. And so we added one paragraph at the end of the regular email that we would send at the end of the third quarter. And it said something like this, Josh, part of the reason I'm reaching out to you today is to let you know we're only looking to appoint 50 agents in our 30 operating states. As of the end of the third quarter, we've appointed 30. We hope you're one of the remaining few that we appoint before year end, something like that. It alerted you to the fact that they weren't looking to appoint a lot of agents. They've already appointed a number. If I don't act quickly, I might not be one of those that they appoint before the end of the year. Gotcha. And that's where my boss came over within an hour and said, I can't believe it. I've had eight agents contact me either mm -hmm. by phone or email since we shot that email out. He said, I've never had anybody reach out to me within an hour. So we knew right away that that one paragraph was doing exactly what we wanted. It was getting people off the fence to try to make a decision to represent the company. But yeah. that opportunity had been there for years, but mm -hmm. we didn't understand this principle of scarcity. We just didn't even think about how we could use it. That makes sense. And, and for the loyal readers, understand that when you're using this, it has to be true. You can't come up with uh, scarcity and uh, have it be fictitious. Right. Um, it needs to be ethical, which will be um, the last letter that we go over in just uh, just a minute. So um, moving on to the next one, which is persuade. So the fourth word is persuade. And the quote is from Winston Churchill. And it says, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me. And the first thing that you write about is that the definition of the word persuade or persuasion. Um, and I actually decided to look it up online to see what the powerful Google had to say. And they use the Oxford Dictionary. Um, and we've actually talked about this just a moment ago. Uh, in, in Oxford Dictionary, it says, cause someone to do something through reasoning or argument. But then I saw the origin of the word, um, which is Latin. And the first part of the word, the per, means through to completion and suede means advise. Um, and I really liked to see where the origin of the word came from. And you mentioned this just a moment ago, and the definition that you preferred for persuasion or persuade is from Aristotle, which is the art of getting someone to do something they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. Right. But then you go on to write about how you change that one word in Aristotle's definition, which is substituting the word art for the word science. Because if we go back to the first letter of the PEOPLE acronym, you write about how influence is powerful because of the 70 years of science behind it. Right. And the reason that you prefer the word science, the word art is because art connotates natural talents and one may not possess that such as singing, dancing, painting, mm -hmm. uh, but science is about learning. So the loyal readers can learn the science of influence and then make conscious choices to apply to their daily lives. So what I want to ask you about persuasion is, should someone focus only on what comes naturally to them, or should they focus on what they have a passion or a drive for to perfect that principle? Um, what would you say about, about that? Well, whatever comes naturally to you is easier because mm -hmm. it's natural. But I think if you only do what comes naturally, you will stunt your growth, I guess. Um, example, if I'm a naturally 
outgoing, likable person, and I lean to that more and more and more, I'm going to eventually find people who don't want to buy just because they like me. And if I haven't worked on other parts of my persuasion skills, then I'm not going to be able to succeed. Um, so you, I think you do need to lean into other things that you're not necessarily as good at because you may need them at some point. Uh, I, I'm certainly not one to say that you need to put all of your time into where you're weak um, because sometimes you can do other things to overcome that. You can have people who help you, but you don't want to become uh, somebody who's only got skill in, in one or two areas. And if you find that people don't respond to that, then you've got nothing else to fall back on. Hey, that that kind of reminds me of two things. The first is, um, I guess, getting back to the example of professional athletes, when you hear about a professional athlete um, and how they had immense you know, talent, but they ended up fizzling out because they just didn't work at it, that they had always just been better than everyone. But once they reached that pinnacle or that top um, kind of tier uh, in sports that they weren't able to just rely solely on their talent. They had to also couple it with hard work. Um, and then also reminds me the last book that we reviewed um, on explain this book to me was with David Carruthers, uh, the extra two minutes and how he talks about being a five tool player or a five tool uh, salesperson that it's just not, you know, one or two things that you have to have several things to be able to to succeed on that so yeah that makes that makes perfect sense um so the fifth word in the people acronym is lasting now there's not a quote for this word um was there a specific thing about lasting that didn't allow you to find a quote or what was the reasoning behind that i don't remember okay that's okay you know, i worked on writing the book a year and a half ago it okay. may have been it, it may have been a miss on my editor's part or my gotcha. part in terms of of that because i was very intentional about using quotes mm -hmm. obviously in okay. the other sections Okay. All right. So in this section, you write about how a friend of yours persuaded you to run the Columbus Marathon when you were not a runner because you had always identified as a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. But his, uh, his persuasion was so lasting on you that you now identify more as a runner than a bodybuilder. And this has led you to running in a half dozen marathons, including the Boston Marathon twice. So do you have another example of this in your own life that you can share or maybe with someone that you've coached or you know where they ended up completely changing you know part of their identity or their full identity because of some sort of lasting persuasion or influence mm -hmm. on your life or their life well the the, the core of this john mm -hmm. is that it wasn't so much that, that my friend persisted and that that changed mm -hmm. me what ends up happening is sometimes when we are persuaded and we take an action, so he did persuade me to start running. But what I found was I really enjoyed it. I was no longer competing in bodybuilding. I had not for years. And running allowed me to become competitive again in a whole new realm where every time I went out, if I was running farther or faster, it was exciting for me. It fueled that competitive nature that I have. And the more I got into it, um, the more I just began to see myself as a runner. So it wasn't that my friend Judd kept saying, you know, you need to get in these races. Once that competitive fire got reignited and I saw myself as a runner, I naturally started doing what runners do. Um, 
So sometimes when we attempt to persuade somebody and they take that first step and they maybe get positive affirmation internally or externally, and they like how that feels, and they begin to go back to that and continue. I mean, quite often human beings, you know, we're little pleasure seekers and pain avoiders. Mm -hmm. We realize something is working well for us and we're getting affirmation. We pretty naturally keep going back to that. And before we know it, it may be a part of our identity. Other examples of this could be if somebody knocks on your door and they uh, tell you about a certain cause that they're raising money for. And you might not have ever heard of the cause before, but it makes sense to you. And you're like, wow, that's that's a really good cause. And you decide to donate and you put your name on the petition. Um, when they come back to you and ask for another donation or another signature, it's easier for you to do that. But what you'll start doing is rationalizing in your mind why that's a good cause, why you should support that. And now you're changing your self-identity as I'm a supporter of this cause. Okay. It doesn't always happen, but mm-hmm. when it does, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, as an example for an insurance agency, you want people to be loyal customers of your agency. You, when yep. they think of their insurance, you want them thinking of Lipstone Insurance Agency. You, um, so that when somebody else is, you know, dangling a carrot and saying, "Hey, I can save you fifteen percent," they're like, "Hey, I'm really happy with my agent, my age, right?" So they see themselves as part of their identity as being a customer of your agency. When that happens, it makes your life easier because you're not having to persuade them every year to stay with you. It does make their life easier too. They're not having to contemplate change every single year. It can become a very beneficial thing for both parties. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. That's something that that we can all use um, moving forward. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the final word in the people acronym, the sixth word, sixth word is ethical. And the quote comes from Albert Schweitzer. I think I said that correctly. Um, A man is truly ethical only when he obeys the compulsion to help all life, which he is able to assist. So you write in the beginning of this section about the difference between ethical persuasion and manipulation. And you write that manipulators look out only for themselves, unconcerned about the impact on others. So do you have any advice on how the loyal readers can discern between someone who is trying to use ethical persuasion versus using manipulation? Sure. Um, When we talk about what it means to ethically persuade, there's three things that we try to focus in on. The first is, am I telling the truth? So, and it's not enough, I'll say, to just tell the truth. We don't hide the truth. Um, You know, if you are looking at my home, because I'm going to maybe sell it, and I tell you all these things about it, I'm being truthful, you, you appreciate that. But let's say there's a rug in the basement because there's a crack in the in the foundation and you buy the house and then one day you move that rug and you're like, there's a crack in the basement. If you came back to me and said, Brian, why didn't you tell me about the crack? If I said, well, Josh, you didn't ask, you're not going to be happy about that answer, right? No. So um, we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. But what people will learn when they're reading the book too is I can talk about my shortcomings or my weaknesses And if I do it the right way, I can also transition into my strengths. And by talking about those weaknesses, I gain trust. Okay. So that's our first component, truthfulness. The Mm -hmm. second thing that we talk about is we only use the principles that are natural to the situation that we find ourselves in. You mentioned earlier, if scarcity is not really available, then we don't manufacture a false scarcity. 
Mm-hmm. You don't say, you know, if you sign today, you can save 15%. But if you don't sign, I can't give you this deal tomorrow when there's really nothing that's truly scarce. And then the third component is, to use Stephen Covey's term, we're trying to create a win-win situation okay. where both parties leave and they feel better off. Now, I know in a sale, as a salesperson, you'd like to sell your product for the top dollar you could get. And that person buying would like to get it for as little as possible. And we end up meeting somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. But wherever we meet, if we agree, we both leave and feel better off. Yeah, I would have liked to have sold it a little bit more and you would have liked to pay it a little less, but we're both happy that we were able to construct a deal. We both feel like we won. So I think if people are telling the truth, using the psychology naturally and creating situations that are beneficial for both parties, you are acting in an ethical manner. When, you know, Robert Cialdini's book, Influence Science and Practice, he talks a lot about how to defend yourself against these principles if you think they're being used unethically against you. And they're very powerful, um, but we can usually tell in our gut. We might in our head be thinking, yeah, it makes sense what this person is saying, but in my gut, I just don't feel it. I would say to your listeners, trust your gut. Just because somebody got you to say yes a whole bunch of times and then they give you the big ask, if internally you're feeling like, yeah, but I don't really want this, follow your gut. It doesn't matter how that person's going to perceive you or any of that. Trust your gut. You don't want to get in a situation where you look back and say, darn it, why did I do that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's it's pretty, I've always been fascinated by the, you know, trusting your gut, the fact that you have this ability to just sense that something is not correct or something's awry. So yeah, just trust your gut, loyal readers. Um, So the next thing you write about applies to something that our country is actually in the midst of right now, which are political ads. So if people know that the majority of political ads distort the truth, and you can make this a short answer if you like, why do political ads work? And why do people continue to use them? Because the psychology that this book talks about Mm-hmm. is just part of how people have, over the millennia, have, have worked together and, and ultimately survived. If, if a principle like scarcity didn't lead you to good outcomes the majority of the time, human beings either would have died off because responding to a principle that wasn't beneficial would cause their demise. Um, so that principle, for example, is still innate in human beings. And even when we try to resist it, mm-hmm. it's still deep down we're hardwired for that. Political ads, it's interesting that people always talk about how they hate the negativity of them. Right. I guarantee you that even if a candidate tried to be super positive and never put out anything negative, the other side that's putting out those negatives would still have that fear factor going on with people and, and people's natural response to that fear factor. So we're kind of caught on a, on a treadmill that we don't want to necessarily be on and we don't understand how to hop off of it. I will say this, Josh, what I do is I I just quit watching mainstream media because even when I try to convince myself, well, if I watch MSNBC and I watch Fox, I'm getting the view of both sides of the world, but I just realized that both sides are not really presenting the news, they're presenting their view of the news. And I I would much rather myself, um, if I hear something, I will go check it out. If it's important to me, I will go check it out. Uh, I will give an example. Um, I was hearing that Kamala Harris was not very 
uh, liberal from some media. And then other media, I'm hearing that, that she was. So I just went out to the internet. And I typed that in. I found a nonpartisan site that, that showed the voting records of senators. And then I could assess for myself where she fell on. Is she liberal or is she not liberal? Um, I hear people on the other side say things about our economy, you know, is, is in shambles. I'm like, okay. I went out and I looked at it myself. Where's the stock market today versus the day before the elections four mm -hmm. years ago? And, and that's not a factual claim to say that the economy is in shambles. Um, so I try to hear things and just go out if it's important enough and I research it myself. I can make a decision when I look at the information. I don't need somebody else to tell me how I'm supposed to interpret it. Yeah. So it's just, uh, loyal readers, it's just taking the time to investigate research and form your own yeah. opinions rather than relying on the opinions of others. And, and Josh, the reality is most people are, are one or two, maybe three issue voters. You know, they've got that thing that, that is right. important for them. And they say, my party holds this. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, am I going to go out and research everything? No, I don't have time to do that. But there are certain things that will be important and I'm going to research and then I'm going to make my decision based on that. But the other thing that I really, and I'm going to probably start writing some blog posts about this, I, I detest when I see that people are trying to manipulate others to get them to, to think or vote their way. And I don't mm -hmm. care what side you're on and what you think your reasoning is. Um, if you, you know, if, if you're on the opposite side and you're justifying lying or manipulating because, oh, the other side is so bad. We have to stop them. Right. Let's say you win. What's to stop you at that point from continuing to lie and manipulate because you think, well, this is what's best for our country. In other words, both sides are really the same. <laughs> They're both lying and manipulating and justifying to themselves that their side is right. And so we have to do whatever we can. And, and I'm sorry, I'm going to call it out when I see it whether it's liberal or it's conservative, because it, the moral foundation, I think, of, of, of persuading people is to be ethical. And if you're not going to be, then just be honest and say, I'm a manipulator. There you go. All right. So the next quote you write in the book is uh, actually from a book, The Art of Wu. Mm -hmm. um, and it says, an earnest and sincere lover buys flowers and candy for the object of his affections. So does the cad who seeks to take advantage of another's heart. But when the cad succeeds, we don't blame the flowers and candy. We rightly question his characters. Yep. And for those of you who are wondering how computer aided design applies to this quote, it doesn't. Because that's the first thing I thought of when I saw the word CAD. So I looked it up and CAD means a man who behaves dishonorably, especially towards a woman. So in that quote, the flower and candies are neutral objects. And you talk about that. They're being used by the CAD so they cannot be blamed for the CAD's action, which holds true um, for the principles of influence. They are neither good nor bad. They only describe how people think and behave. And you end the section by writing that using the principles of influence ethically are of the utmost importance. And this actually reminds me of a quote from Uncle Ben in the comic books and movies, Spider-Man, uh, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the quote that you like is from Aristotle, and its character may almost be... And the quote that you like is from Aristotle... 
character may almost be called the most effective means of persuasion. So Brian, do you have any final words for the loyal readers regarding people before we wrap up this episode? Um, I would just like to emphasize what we were just talking about there um, mm -hmm. when it comes to the, the ethics. What we'll be talking about in the next uh, podcast sessions as we dive into this psychology, I just want people to really understand the psychology is neither good nor bad. The fact that um, people typically respond better to those who first give to them, that's just how people are. The fact that we tend to respond more to what we may lose versus what we may gain, that's just how people are wired. It's not good, it's not bad. How somebody uses that understanding, just like oh, yeah. flowers and the candy, right? I, I can use flowers and candy honorably. I gave mm -hmm. my wife two dozen roses the day that I asked her to marry me. And we've been married now for 32 years. Um, other people might use flowers for a more manipulative reason because they just want to go to bed with somebody and they're going to do whatever they can to get that. They don't care about them. They just want what they want. Um, but again, flowers, that doesn't make flowers bad. And when we talk about this psychology, I want people to really recognize the psychology is, is, is neutral. How you choose to use that will reveal something about your character. And I really want people who read this book or listen to this podcast series to walk away thinking, how can I use this psychology to not just get what I want, but to help other people get what they want so that we both leave better off that I am, you know, especially as an insurance agent, that I am mm -hmm. better at communicating with a customer. So he or she sees the need for these coverages or these limits rather than they're just thinking, I want to sell them more insurance so I can earn more money. I mean, that's, yeah. that is uh, unfortunately a view a lot of people have. But right. if agents understand how to communicate more effectively, then people are better protected. Everybody wins. There you go. Well, thank you, Brian, for joining me on uh, Explain This Book to Me, book three, episode one of Influence People. I know I've learned a tremendous amount. And again, send me the bill for the uh, <laughs> psychology session. Uh, we're only 10 pages into the book. Um, and so I'm very excited for the remainder of the book. Brian, uh, for the loyal readers who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, a couple of ways. LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. reach out. Uh, if you don't tell me that you heard me on the podcast, you can rest assured I will send a message back and say, how did you find me? I like to understand mm -hmm. where people are reaching out. Uh, I also think social media should be social. And so that gets a little opportunity to communicate. The other avenue is certainly my website, which is influencepeople.biz. Um, you can email me from there, phone numbers there. Uh, there's also a tremendous number of resources that are all free out there as well. Very good. And we'll have all of his contact information in the show notes. Um, so loyal readers, uh, please make sure that you're subscribed to Agency Intelligence Podcast. And if you have 90 seconds to spare today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And if you haven't already purchased Brian's book, then again, check out the show notes where there will be a link in there to be able to purchase it on Amazon. Um, we're actually now on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash explain this book to me. And we'd love it if you can give us a like on our page because we want to connect with you outside of the podcast where this is just a conversation between Brian and I, but we'd love to be able to engage with you, find out what questions and comments that you have. Um, and loyal readers, again, thank you for downloading the first episode of our third book of the Explain This 
Book to Me podcast, where I sit down with authors, thought leaders, and visionaries to explain the book to them and have them answer questions that I have. Remember to be safe, be healthy, and love everyone. This has been Josh Lipstone with Explain This Book to Me.